Father, uh, we can come to you and you give us what we need. You're our creator. And so, Father, uh, uh, many of us here uh, have needs. Some things people know about, and there's other things that uh, are unknown, but you know, and people are asking you. And so, God, hear our prayers. And thank you for what we heard about little Renly and, and those things that you do so kindly, God, because you answer our prayers. And we have the promise that our prayers um, come before you because of your son, Jesus. He brings them into the throne room. Thank you for that. So this morning, God, um, we need things, and we're asking you. And bring your word uh, to us. Um, make it uh, alive in our hearts and our minds and our souls. And we're asking this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Deanie. We have been in a study of the book of First Peter and, by extension, Second Peter, and we will be for several more weeks. But we've been doing that through the last part of the summer and now into the fall. And last Sunday, the passage that we were looking at found Peter meddling, really, if you will, in the realm of submission. And he started out by meddling, by telling us that we are to submit to those in positions of authority, and he made it very specific by saying the emperor. So we talked about what it means to be submissive to government, tough part of Peter's writing. Then he made it a little more personal by telling us that we also needed to submit slaves to masters, and we made the application of employees to employers became very personal. It became very real. And he was just kind of messing around in some things that touch all of us. Well, this morning, he's continuing on that idea of submission by talking about marriage. Now, that can be a hard thing for us to really want to embrace coming from an apostle because most people believe that the apostles, all of them, were single. And they were out ministering to people unencumbered by wives or children or families. But that simply is not the case. And that is not the case with Peter. Peter was married. And some people are not aware of that. But that's, that's exactly what the Bible teaches us. Peter was married. Now, Scripture doesn't say a whole lot about that relationship. But we know it was there. And here's how. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell some version of this story. Now, this is Luke's telling of it. Take a look at what he says. And he arose, meaning Jesus, and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. If Peter had a mother-in-law, it stands to reason he had a wife. So Peter was married. He was married. We don't hear much of anything else through the Gospels about her. We do not know her name. Even extra-biblical writings will somewhat disagree on her name and the role that she played, but we know she existed. We also know that she became a part of Peter's ministry as an apostle. We learned that in the book of 1 Corinthians. Take a look at this. 
Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Cephas is another name for Peter. Peter's wife started traveling with him. Peter's wife became a part of his missionary journeys. When he was going and visiting different places, she was with him. And it would almost appear that the Apostle Paul, the author of this passage, was a little bit jealous of that. He was, he was a little bit in a position where he might have cried out, hey, that's not fair. That's not fair. Because Scripture would indicate and other writings would tell us that Paul was single. So he gets to see Peter traveling with his wife. And then these extra-biblical writings start to tell us some of the things that she was doing. She was helping lead young women into a closer walk with the Lord. She was leading younger women into an initial relationship with Jesus and then deeper into it. She was highly, highly involved. Yet still in Scripture, we go from this first indication that she existed to this later indication that she was with him, but there's a massive gap between the two. There's a huge gap between the two, and that leaves all kinds of questions. It may very well be that that gap exists because of this one often overlooked passage. Why don't you join me in the Gospel of Luke? Luke chapter 18, I'm going to start in verse 18, and I'm doing that because you need the, the full passage in order to understand the significance of what is said here. Luke chapter 18, verse 18, and a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. Now dial in real close, listen to Peter. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Now listen to verse 28 again. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. Now here's this indication in the Gospel of Luke that Peter's saying, we walked away from our homes, from our families, from our wives, and we're following you. You called us into this ministry and we are with you, but we left everything else behind, including our wives. And then after that, we get nothing else. We get nothing else. But in that, it is entirely possible that we get some great understanding of Peter's teaching on marriage. 
So let's hang out with this passage from Luke 18 for just a minute, and we're going to have some fun with it. Now, when I say we're going to have some fun with it, we're going to do what I refer to as some speculation Bible study. Speculation Bible study is nothing more than kicking some ideas around. It is not, listen to me, it is not biblically authoritative. It is ideas. And the reason that I want us to do that this morning is an idea that I stumbled across earlier in the week reading from one of my favorite authors. He challenges my thinking. He challenges my understanding and at times challenges my heart like no one else that I've ever read. His name is Mark Buchanan. Mark Buchanan throws out an idea about Peter and his wife that has just left me kind of spinning. Now again, this is not biblically authoritative, this is speculative. And in order for us to do this speculation and for you to catch up to what I've been studying through and working my way through this week, we're going to have to go to the Gospel of John for some context. So join me in John chapter 21. John 21, a familiar passage to those of you that have been around the church for years and years and years. So it will sound like something that you've heard a lot, but I want to share with you something that you may have never thought of before in light of this passage. John 21, verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now, if you're familiar with that passage, you have heard different preachers and teachers, myself included, give ideas as to why it is that Jesus would ask Peter the same question three different ways. You have heard all kinds of explanations. We don't have enough time to go into all of those this morning, and so we're just going to kind of set that aside and look at Buchanan's speculation. And he ties a lot of it to the emotion that Peter had the third time he was asked this question. The English Standard Version says he was grieved that Jesus would ask him that again, the exact same question. And that's where his speculation really begins to fire itself up. Why would Jesus ask the same question like he did to the point of getting Peter almost angry? This is Buchanan. Now remember, speculation, not authority. Speculation. This is Buchanan's idea. Because Peter had heard that question repeatedly from his wife. And it was a very personal question. Peter, do you love me? Do you even love me? Now here's the context of how Mark Buchanan would set that up. Maybe she had asked him that over and over for the past three years. After he left a perfectly good day job catching fish and took up with that wandering storyteller, a man so broke he had to fetch tax money from fish mouths, scrounge bread and fish from a mere child, and pilfer grain from some farmer's field just to feed himself and his followers. Maybe, just maybe, she would say, 
Peter, do you even love me? Why would you do this? He goes on in his speculation to put forward a possible conversation that the two of them had. It would sound like this. Peter, how can you do this to me, to us? What am I, chopped liver that you run off with this this vagabond, this babbler and rambler with his kooky ideas and made-up stories and all those floozies who follow him around? I heard one of them even crash Simon's dinner party and started kissing this man's feet in front of all the guests. It's unseemly, Peter. People are talking. Peter, don't you see? This is crazy. Can't you do one thing for my sake for a change? Peter, do you truly love me? Maybe that's why Jesus would ask those questions, because they were familiar to him. And according to Buchanan, maybe, maybe, Jesus was doing something deep in the heart of Peter to help him understand things that he desperately needed to understand. It's interesting in Buchanan's book, he goes on to speculate by writing what I would refer to as a journal entry from Peter's wife where she talks more about her feelings. I like this. And it is only fitting that you hear it from a woman's voice. So my wife is going to read it to you. Tina, come share that. He came back to me after I'd stopped waiting. You understand, yes, that a woman who waits and a woman who gave up waiting are not the same woman, not at all. My heart was wood and stone. My heart was bitter root and dry husk. My heart's last gate closed and I locked it and only then did he come back. I did not want him. I could not abide his big, thick body leaving its stains and smells and molting in every inch and corner. His heaviness hollowed out the places he laid. I'd find his debris everywhere, mud from the seashore left on my kitchen floor, hair from his back thatch littered across my bed, Hair from his grizzled beard coiled wet inside my wash basin like an arabesque of cracks. Scales from the fish he went back to catching, flecking all he'd brush against. I once found these things a comfort, mementos of his presence, harbingers of his return. But not now. Now they are to me only work, intrusion, omen. I didn't understand how Jesus could do this to us. Pull our lives apart. We once were happy in a reasonable way. We had a life. He had a job. Not a lot of money, but we made do. We were tired most of the time. What couple is not? And didn't talk much. What couple does? And our love life was nothing to speak of. What couples is? But we got by. But then Jesus, he came and called Peter. And Peter never even asked me. He just decided. He was like that. But Jesus should have known that about him. Jesus should have asked Peter to think it over a while, to weigh it out, to talk to his wife about these things. We might have reached a compromise. I'd spent our entire marriage compensating for that man, being shrewd to protect from his naivety, being cautious to make up for his rashness, being suspicious because he was overly trusting, being stingy just a bit, or else he'd have squandered what little we had. I went slow at things because he ran reckless and usually stumbled, 
and then Jesus broke all that asunder. I was angry enough to die. I thought of a thousand things to do, to take revenge, to take control, but did none. Peter stayed away longer and longer, and I got so I liked it. I found other things to do. I found ways to survive. The house became very quiet. In the late afternoons, I would sit where sunlight fell into the room, large squares of it that grew narrow and sharp as they shuttled up the wall, until they were gone altogether and the room was a cool cupful of shadow. For the first time, I felt still. Then one day, Peter didn't come home at all. I heard rumors about his whereabouts. They were heading to Jerusalem. There was going to be a war there or something. I didn't know what to believe. After a time, I didn't care. My heart had turned to bitterness and then withered into apathy. I was content with my emptiness. I was alone, and it was good. And then he came back. That was a long time ago now. I still don't grasp all of it, is the truth. We had, after we started talking again, many conversations, Peter trying to explain, me trying to understand, but always we missed each other. What changed it all was him. It took me months to see this. But the man who returned was not the man who had left. The man who came in the door had a strange and quiet courage about him, the courage of a man who had already died and so found little on this earth to frighten him. And he listened now, his big head bent down and his wide, thick brow creased with thought. But mostly, he prayed. He reached out his large, rough hands, hands that softened a little each week after he stopped fishing, and folded my hands into his, gentle as though he were gathering something fragile, something he was being careful not to damage, and he prayed. He asked God, with a childlikeness that made me both want to laugh and cry, to come near to us, and often I'm sure I felt something brush the skin just where my neck touched my hair. Peter prayed for food and shelter, for the church, for those who suffered for their faith, for those who as yet did not trust Jesus. He prayed for more faith, a prayer he prayed like breathing, and he prayed for us. His words were like that sunlight that fell into that room, and I felt that same stillness I felt before, only this was better. And one day I understood this was the man I had been waiting for all my life. And maybe, just maybe, all of that happened because of an early morning conversation between Peter and the Lord when he said, do you love me? And in the midst of that conversation, Peter began to understand something even deeper, more far-reaching, that to love Jesus means you're going to have to figure out what it means to love others, starting in your home, starting in your home. One last thought from the author. She became an integral part of Peter's life and ministry. Peter discovered that Jesus' love is not some narrow, rigid thing. It is wide and deep and wild, loosing on earth what it looses in heaven. It is passionate and tender and resilient. Devotion to Christ does not cancel out devotion to others, but completes it. Peter learned to do what Paul later told all husbands to do, to love his wife as Christ loved the church, giving himself up for her. Maybe that's what he figured out while he was on the beach with the Lord early one morning 
when Jesus would say to him three times, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? As a result of that, if that is true, then we can start to understand some of why Peter wrote the way he did about marriage. I want you to see it for yourself. Join me in 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 1. By the way, we're leaving the realm of speculation now. This is the authority of the Word of God. Peter writes, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the Word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now that is some good teaching. It really is. And that comes from a man who we knew was married, and then it would take years before we knew that he was really loving his wife enough to invite her into his life. And at one point in between the two, he would actually say, we've left our homes. We're following you, Lord. But Jesus had to recalibrate him possibly to get him back to a place where he realized that the first and most important ministry that he would ever have in serving Jesus Christ as Lord was at home. And so then Peter writes like this, and what writing it is, what teaching it is. If you are really willing to get into it, it is very, very deep. It starts, though, with a question that has to run through the minds of all of the ladies that are sitting with us. Why is it that in Peter's teaching, he would actually address the women two to three times more than the men? And that math only comes from the number of verses. There are six verses dedicated to how women are to conduct themselves and only one verse for the men. Well, the answer is actually very simple. Don't overthink it, ladies. Don't overthink it. This is it. Jesus Christ did more for the cause of women than any other person in all of history. So when Jesus came into the Roman culture especially, women were held down. They didn't have many freedoms at all. They weren't allowed to make decisions. They weren't allowed to determine their own steps. They were very, very oppressed. And Jesus came lifting that oppression and giving great freedom to women. And the church became an incredible expression of that freedom. Women were coming to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior just like men were. And obviously, from what Peter writes, a number of those ladies were coming to know Jesus as Lord and Savior without their husbands. Something that formally could not have happened, would not have happened. But Jesus has now lifted that oppression and given great freedom to these ladies. 
And as such, they're trying to figure their way into that freedom. So the Bible spends just a little bit of time talking about it and helping direct that newfound freedom into an order that would work. So Peter writes about biblical submission. He's not the only person, the only biblical writer that will bring that subject up. But Peter certainly does it twice in the passage that we just read. Once in verse 1 and once in verse 5, he uses the word submission. Now you need to understand what biblical submission really is. It is about order. It is about God's divine authority. And without divine authority, without order, chaos reigns. It really does. And it doesn't matter if that is in the home or if that's in the workplace or if that is in countries or communities. Without order, chaos is the only thing that reigns. So the Lord gave order even to the home, divine authority or divine order. So he tells women to live with your husbands in a submissive way. Now, it is pretty awesome how he unpacks that idea of submission. But before we get into Peter's unpacking of it, I want you to pay close attention to what the biblical authority or the order really looks like. And for that, we're going to skip out of Peter's teaching and go to Paul's, and then we'll come back to Peter's. So keep your finger right here. But join me in Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. There's the divine authority, the order. But pay close attention because this is what it looks like. And fellas, you dial in and pay close attention because this is what it looks like. Husbands, verse 25, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now that's divine authority. That is biblical submission within the home as it is laid out in Scripture. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the body, his church. But husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her for this huge reason. For this huge reason. So that's divine authority and that is biblical submission within the home. It's two parts. It is two parts. It isn't something that is just leveled towards ladies and the men have no responsibility within it. The men have responsibility within it. And so we have to pay attention to that. And we're going to come back to the men in just a second. But Peter starts by addressing the ladies. And he did that very pointedly, took six verses. And in those six verses, he helps us understand what biblical submission really looks like. So let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 3. Look at how he starts out. Likewise, 
Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word or by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. In those two verses, Peter helps us understand that biblical submission is an obligation. It is first an obligation, because it is commanded by Scripture. But second, it is an opportunity for evangelism. So not only is it an obligation, but when it is practiced, the byproducts and the benefits of it are massive. So it's this opportunity for evangelism. And in those days, a lot of these ladies were coming to know the Lord and their husbands were not. And many of those ladies thought, if my husband doesn't become a Christian, then that frees me to leave my husband and get away from him. And the Bible says, no, 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 no brings it back together and says that if you'll understand biblical submission, then you will see an opportunity for evangelism. And here's the cool thing. Whole bunch of men became believers in Jesus because they saw their wife doing exactly what Scripture commanded. So it's an obligation that leads to an opportunity. But the third thing that Peter teaches, and he uses the rest of those first six verses to do it, is that it is an adornment. It is an adornment. Not only is it an obligation that leads to an opportunity, but it is this thing that God treasures. It is an adornment. Now, really, if we wanted to boil it all down to what that adornment looks like, this is it. Wives, work on the internal stuff and don't care so much about the externals. Look at the transformation that happens inside as you grow closer to the Lord and you become more and more like Him. Focus on that. Don't focus on what you're wearing. Don't focus on your hair. Don't focus on all the externals. Focus on what's happening on the inside. That's the adornment. The book of Proverbs, Solomon would write about that adornment this way. This is really good and, and powerfully pointed. Proverbs chapter 31, verse 30. Solomon says, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. That's the adornment of Christ. It is a healthy, growing fear of the Lord, a healthy, growing relationship with God that determines everything and guides everything. So that's what Peter starts out by teaching. He says, wives, be submissive to your husbands. It's an obligation that becomes an opportunity. And when you really, really get involved in it and you start seeing it for what it is, it becomes an adornment that God looks at and says, well done, well done. That's the adornment part of it. There is a lot to be said about biblical submission and we don't have enough time to go into all of it today. So ladies and even men, let me say this. We have some women that teach in our women's ministry that can do an exceptional job of telling you more about what biblical submission looks like. Our elders' wives can do an exceptional job of telling you what biblical submission looks like. There's other ladies that do the same thing. If you want to know more about it, respond to the invitation at the end of the service. Go over here and tell Deanie, standing at that door, I'd like to talk to one of those ladies about what biblical submission is. He'll pair you up with somebody that can take you further into that discussion, solely because we don't have enough time to today. So get deeper into it in some one-on-one -on -one personal conversations.
Well, let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 3, take a look at what he says to men, because men, you're not off the hook here, not at all. So let's go back there and look closely at what he says. This is verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. You may think, guys, well, we got by with just one verse. Ha, that's pretty nice. Ha, <laughs> ha, four things in that verse. Number one, Peter says, husbands, live with your wives, which means be present with them. Live with your wives. Certainly it means provide for your home, but it also means be present with your wife. Live with your wife. There are a whole lot of men that have forgotten what that means. Oh, they want to be with their fiancé or their girlfriend, but once they become husband and wife, they check out of the relationship. They busy themselves with work. They busy themselves with hobbies. They busy themselves with friends and other relationships and other interests. And today, men will busy themselves with video games. Men will busy themselves with the internet. Men will busy themselves with scrolling as will women at times, but men are worse offenders of that. So Peter's saying, live with your wife, be present. There was a study done not very long ago at all that said on average, on average in the United States of America, husbands and wives spend 37 minutes a week in dedicated time with one another. 37 minutes. 37 minutes. Really? So, shut off the video games. Put your phone down. Stop running around. Stop busying yourself so much that you're not at home and learn how to live with your wife and with your spouse, the Bible says. Because if you're really going to know each other, you're going to have to be together. But look what he says next. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. That means you've got to understand your wife and the way she thinks you have to understand the way she feels about things. You have to understand the desires of your wife. And the only way you're going to do that is by that time that you're spending there. If I was boiling down this teaching, it would sound just like this. Husbands, get to know your wives. Get to know your wives and understand them. question was asked of Albert Einstein's wife one time. They said, Mrs. Einstein, do you understand Dr. Einstein's theory of relativity? And she said, not at all, but I understand the doctor. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. You don't have to understand everything. Understand the person. In marriage counseling, a lot of times I will hand a piece of paper to a husband and a wife and I'll ask them to write down the things that the other person enjoys. Not what they enjoy, but the things the other person enjoys. Women tend to be very good at that. Men tend to miss the mark because they haven't figured out how to live with their wives in an understanding way and really know them and know what matters to them. Peter goes on to say that we've got to figure out a few other things. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. So not only do you have to live with them, be present, but you have to understand them, and you have to figure out how to show honor to them. 
You show honor to them. Now, he uses this term, weaker vessel, and man, oh man, has that ever been distorted. All Peter meant by that was physically. Men, you're stronger. That's biology. You're stronger. So live with your wife as the weaker person in such a way that you are honoring everything else about her. You are honoring her because she is a joint heir with you in Christ. You don't have a higher position or a higher standing in the kingdom of God than your wife does. She has an exact equal standing. So you honor that within her. And that means that you have to see her as a redeemed child of the king the same way you see yourself and want her to see you that way. So you honor her. You hold her up in that. I love the the partnership of how that works. Warren Wiersbe does a really good job of describing it. The husband must be the thermostat in the home, setting the emotional and spiritual temperature. The wife is the thermometer, letting him know what the temperature is. Both are necessary. That's a good way to bring honor in. That's a good way to understand this idea of biblical submission and divine authority. Fellas, set the pace. Ladies, encourage them in it. That doesn't always mean that you have to tell them that it is too hot or it is too cold. Sometimes as the thermometer, you get to say, we are doing good. We're right where we need to be. And honor helps us see that. There's one last thing that is crazy intriguing here. Take a look again, verse 7. So that your prayers may not be hindered. So Peter says... Get this figured out so that your prayers may not be hindered. As far as I know, that's the only place in Scripture where that teaching shows up. If we don't get this figured out, this home relationship, this marriage relationship and what biblical submission looks like within it, God doesn't always listen to our prayers. Who doesn't want their prayers answered? So let's go back to John 21. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Because Peter, if you're ever going to be effective at what you need to be effective with, you got to get home and fix that issue and then come back and let's do what we need to do so your prayers can be answered. Who doesn't want their prayers answered? And fellas, best I can tell as I read that, that's directed to us. Now ladies, I think there's great teaching in that for you as well, but fellas, that's directed to us. That's in that one verse for us. Because you're the thermostat. You're the one who sets the pace. So make sure you're honoring your wife the right way. And ladies, make sure you're reciprocating the way you're supposed to so that the prayers of your family, your marriage, will be heard and not hindered. Not hindered. We could keep going on this, and and trust me, I have other parts of this sermon that as I watch the clock, I am currently saying, we're not going to do that, we're not going to do that, we're not going to do that. Instead, I'm just going to leave you with seven questions that I think every marriage needs to ask itself, every Christian marriage, and then Raina's going to close our service. Take a look. Seven questions. Number one, are we partners or competitors? Number two, are we helping each other grow in our knowledge of the Lord? Number three, is our marriage built on the externals or the internals? Number four, are we constantly working at understanding the other person? Number five, are we sensitive to the other person's feelings and ideas, or are we taking the other person for granted? 
Number six, are we seeing our prayers answered? Number seven, are we better because of our marriage or are we robbing each other of God's blessings? Let me throw a challenge to you. Those seven things are on the app, the church app. Pull that up this afternoon, this evening, tomorrow morning. Don't let too much time pass before you do this. Sit down together with your husband, your wife, and ask those seven questions. If you are married to a non-believing spouse, then you ask them yourself. You ask them yourself and see if there's something that you need to do with that. But go through those seven questions. They'll make you better. They'll help you fine-tune what you need to fine-tune. So go through them. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, lay 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 through 7 right next to it. And together, figure out how you're doing. Ladies, we gave you three things in biblical submission. Men, I gave you four this morning that you have to think about. So think about it.